0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth
1: Eats. And she brought two jars of lilacs, like drink made of lilacs. So she brought also cups and everybody could try it. It was really something like a miracle for me because I have never thought that it could be drunk in this way. This
0: week on the show, a story about a community garden in Tallinn, Estonia. We talk with Jerry Mercury, a political immigrant from Russia whose encounter with the garden was transformative. And later in the show, we have a recipe for quick garden-fresh pickles, plus stories from Harvest Public Media about composting efforts in Midwestern cities and federal investments in farm-to-school programs. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. On a show about food and farming, we talk a lot about gardens. We talk about the thrill of growing your own food, about how growing food is harder than you might think, about the educational value of gardens in schools, and I'm sure we've talked about gardens and community. That's what I wanna focus on today. My guest is Jerry Mercury. He's currently living in Estonia after fleeing Russia at the start of the war with Ukraine. I wanted to talk with Jerry about the power of community gardens in times
1: of crisis. My name is Jerry Mercury. I am a political immigrant here in Estonia. I'm transgender, I use pronoun he. Before fleeing here, I was in Russia doing self-advocacy as a neurodivergent person.
0: Jerry Mercury is also an artist and a filmmaker. His films have screened here on the IU campus. Jerry is currently living in Tallinn, after spending time in a refugee camp and staying with various friends in Estonia. Jerry left Russia shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine and the war began in the spring of 2022. Jerry is opposed to the war, and as a transgender and neurodivergent person, it can be dangerous for him to stay in Russia.
1: I didn't feel safe there in in any way um, because I was never sure what the next day will bring.
0: In case you're not familiar with this part of the world, Estonia is a country in northern Europe bordering the Baltic Sea and Gulf of Finland. Formerly part of the Soviet Union, Estonia also shares a border with Russia. Why did you go to Estonia in particular? Did you you said you had some friends that you were able to stay with at first or?
1: Yes, that was one of the reasons, but mainly because I didn't have any other choice because this uh, place was the easiest for me to receive the visa to. So by that time I had a person who could give me this visa. So he gave me this visa and I went here. Otherwise, I don't know. Maybe I would still be in Russia. I see.
0: So I wanted to talk to you today because you have encountered a community garden project where you are. And I understand that you've interviewed people and you've written about it and maybe made a video project about it. And I wanted to hear from you about this project and what it has meant to you.
1: When I came here, first a friend of mine introduced me to this community garden uh, because she lives just near it. And she plants uh, things there, like there is her flower bed in this garden. And I was told that any person can basically pay 10 euros for a flower bed and uh, grow anything there well anything like anything legal and also that they don't use pesticides and chemicals so it's kind of environmentally friendly
0: is it in the city in Tallinn? yes and i guess i was wondering if at some point you could tell the story of how you first you know when you first saw it or how you first responded to it i guess
1: so it was I think <laughs> not a very linear story because first when I came to Estonia I uh, spent some days uh, there with my friend and uh, the neighbor of my friend just showed me this community garden just uh, she said like do you want to have a look and I said okay yes um, and I came there but that time I didn't really get interested because I was still in this state of trauma, and uh, I was not sure what to do.
0: The visa that Jerry had obtained was only good for 90 days, so he was understandably preoccupied with figuring out the next steps.
1: Like, should I apply to this asylum-seeking program? And so this garden was just a fact for me. But then I had a very difficult year. So as I mentioned that I was in the refugee camp and then I moved from there also because uh, the situation was rather unsettling there. And I moved to a more horrible place, even if one can imagine so.
0: At the recommendation of a relative, Jerry had rented a place from some people in another town. It turned out to be a terrible situation and an additional trauma for Jerry. So he returned to Tallinn, where he lives now, and where the community garden is located. It's time to take a quick break. I'm speaking with Jerry Mercury about his experience with a community garden in Tallinn, Estonia, and the effect it had on him during a time of crisis. When we return, we'll talk with Jerry about what happened when he showed up at a garden gathering with curiosity and a camera. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. My guest is Jerry Mercury, a political immigrant from Russia, currently living in Estonia. We're talking with Jerry about a transformative encounter with a community garden in the city of Tallinn. Jerry is a writer, and he decided to build a portfolio of stories in pursuit of a career in journalism. The community garden had an event coming up, and Jerry thought this might make an interesting story. So he showed up with a camera and a plan to talk with the people involved.
1: Just to ask people, uh, local people, what is it uh, this community garden culture, and to ask some questions about the event because I started realizing that this event is, and this event and this project is very unusual for me as a person from Russia, because in Russia there is nothing like this. Like, in Russia, people just grow their plants and flowers and, I don't know, vegetables in their own yards in the countryside. If they have summer houses, they do it. Otherwise, in the city, they might grow something under their windows, like something also for their personal use, I don't know.
0: So, so the idea of a community garden is something that you had not seen in Russia.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's why I got interested in this. Then I was invited for another event there. And this event was dedicated to something like garden therapy. So in the middle of event was the person who was invited her name is Ella, and uh, she is an occupational therapist. One of uh, the things that she is keen on is this um, idea of gardening and connecting w- with the nature in order to, I don't know, live a more holistic life. And so, I also took an interview from her.
0: So, can you describe the garden for me, like where? where in the city it's situated and, you know, what it's like, what it looks like?
1: Kadriork is a huge park in the city, which is not really in the center, but let's say some bus stations from the center. This huge park is not far from the sea, uh, but this park is not exactly where the community garden is because the community garden is situated really In a small yard between uh, common houses there are houses like city type houses and there's one house like a wooden house. Mm, I think this wooden house it gives water to the water tank that is used for watering the plants there. This place is not really something it's it's not like in the center, it's not in some touristic place. It's just a uh, common place. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Like and, in a neighborhood or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. There are some flower beds. They have square shapes. I think each of them has two levels, a bigger level and a smaller level, and people grow also some edible plants there and the flowers and some berries, I think. So each person or each family, I don't know, has uh, their own flower bed that they're renting. And also there are some common flower beds. And so during this second event that I visited, I was lucky to put some seeds in the soil myself, in the common uh, flower bed. And there are some benches also, and uh, during the interview, I heard that some people sometimes gather there with probably alcohol or something, and that is sort of okay, so nobody leaves any rubbish, nobody vandalizes, as I understood, so there were not any acts of huge vandalism.
0: And so there's no fence around it or anything, it's just open no, to who No. Yes, anyone. exactly,
1: so people really trust each other, and that also what grabbed my attention, that I couldn't imagine anything of this kind in Russia
0: because you don't experience that attitude of trust. Yes,
1: definitely. I mean, I I'm not idealizing Estonia as a country because I have encountered here really bad things, but I understand that the general level of trust here is uh, much better than in Russia anyway. <laughs> So it's like, I don't know, those community gardens. So it's not uh, the only community garden because there are 30 of them, as I was told, around the city. And and uh, none of them are fenced. So it's just uh, everybody can walk there. And
0: are the 30 of them... Are they connected in any way? Is there sort of a group of folks who are interested in kind of starting these around? Or is it just spontaneous as the community in that neighborhood decides to do them
1: themselves? Well, as I was told that uh, this movement started like four or five years ago from two community gardens. Local people from those places uh, started this and then They received uh, support from the government, and also, as I was told, they help with probably keeping this territory clean. And then the movement started becoming uh, wider, so it's spread all over the city. Honestly, I don't know where exactly it started, like, originally in Estonia, because I also heard that this... uh, phenomenon is also widely spread in other cities like Tartu and some smaller cities as i understand it's kind of western phenomenon to me so
0: i would really like to hear more about how you experienced the gardens or the garden that you encountered and what it has meant to you i i know you said it was an interesting topic for you But I also got the sense from what I read and from communication with you that it also had sort of an emotional impact on you, just where you were at in your life and the things that you'd been through recently.
1: I need to say that when I came with my camera to this event, people really greeted me in a very welcoming way. And I was even surprised because... um, I don't know, maybe because I had a camera or something, I was really warmly welcomed. And that was a really contrasting experience for me, given what I really (laughs) experience daily. I think that uh, what I really liked, that it's uh, still related with nature. Because where I live now, it's a very industrial place. Unfortunately, I cannot cannot show you, but just here, like what I see from my window is a huge metallic wall of some building. All what I have around is asphalt and there is a huge highway which is very noisy. There are many, many buildings uh, of some industrial content. Uh, like behind here, there are some tractors and some special cars for some special purposes. And uh, so this is the area where I live. And uh, the garden is still something that relates to nature and that is meant to keep this connection between human beings and nature. For me, it's, I don't know, I'm, I, I really miss nature, really.
0: How did it feel for you that day when you had the chance to plant seeds?
1: I mean, it was a new experience for me. I felt connected with the people who were there. So before that we made a circle and everybody had to say their name and uh, introduce themselves to the other people around. It was really kind of those uh, managers of the movement that they decided to speak English so that I could understand because they all speak Estonian. But I felt connected with those people and um, that time my friend also came and we were choosing together the seeds that we wanted to plant there and all the names of the seeds were in Estonian and I asked like for the translation and there were many uh, small packages of seeds with poppies, the poppy flower of different uh, sorts and kinds of different colors and at some point i said like let's choose something just simple uh, because we cannot like plant everything here so i think we chose some kind of poppies and also how do you call it this uh, cornflower yes uh, the blue one and this uh, cornflower is the symbol one of the symbols of estonia by the way since then i i think i visited some other event and sometimes i just come there and watch what has grown up from those seeds there are no flowers still but some greenery is visible and i recognize the poppy leaves yeah
0: so by getting a chance to plant some seeds yourself did it feel like you were sort of a part of the the community garden
1: i felt that i was not excluded that's I think was important, because um, it's so hard here to be in not included, but at least not excluded from any kind of group, as I find it. And there it was kind of simple because there is some common thing to do, common task, and nothing special is required. Like one doesn't need to have some special set of mind or ideas some ideology, just to enjoy putting the seeds in the soil, and that's it.
0: Do you have any experience gardening any other time, like in your life, growing food or growing flowers? or
1: Probably, yeah. Uh, I think it was when my mom and I had a dacha back in Russia, like when I was a teenager. There was a garden, and I think we planted some strawberries. Yeah, I remember strawberries, I think. I remember that all the neighbors had also their gardens there. And uh, it's it was sort of a common thing. I think that was the time when I felt really close to the nature. Mm-hmm. But since then, I don't think I had much of experience. Like, apart from taking care of the plants in my house back in St. Petersburg, which I enjoyed a lot, I think, Uh, like changing the soil, putting more soil into the pot. I remember that the plants grew very uh, well when I was there. And my mom even told me that I have a green thumb or something like this. Jerry was
0: talking about a time with his mother in a country home in Russia, also known as a dacha. Right now, he doesn't have any plants in the apartment where he's staying in Tallinn. He doesn't know how long he'll be here or what will happen next, so he's decided not to take on the responsibility of keeping plants. Having something growing at the community garden nearby fills that desire to connect with living
1: plants. One of the people I was interviewing, they said that this is kind of a simple garden, like a bit like a grandma's garden, so it's not polished or something... It's not, uh, there is no luxury there, just uh, flower beds and flowers. Everything is very democratic. And that's why also I like it that, yes, that anybody can walk there and sit on the bench and nobody will say anything. I hope.
0: (laughs) And it's, yeah, like you said, it's not, it's not like landscaped it's really just people planting stuff in these beds
1: yes exactly those community gardens they look a bit different like one garden from another for example for this video that i'm making now i also took the footage of the community garden in the old town and it looks a bit different because the probably is bigger and the beds are a bit wider and longer. And of course, different people grow different plants and different flowers. So there is variety. I think no no two identical gardens in, in the city.
0: So when I think of community gardens, I usually think of them being about growing food, that it's a place where you can grow some food for your household, even if you don't have a, a place in in your own yard, you know, like you live in an apartment or don't have access to land. They usually do have flowers as well because those attract pollinators and they really make the space more beautiful. But I always think of them more as a as a place for food. But it sounds like that's not necessarily the case in these gardens.
1: Well, I think it's also the case because, uh, for example, my friend uh, grows salad there and also some other edible plants, like, I think, peppermint, for example. She also gave me some of those plants to eat. And uh, for me, it's also unusual because many years passed uh, from the point when, um, as I mentioned, uh, I had, in my childhood, some garden near the summer house where there were strawberries and maybe there was something else that I don't remember. Maybe there was salad actually, maybe even something else. But I even don't remember because time went on. And now when I pick those leaves from the flower bed, it's really a bit uh, unusual, unnatural, I don't know. I have to adjust to it because I'm not used to it. I'm used to buying things from the shop. And when it it grows like this, it's uh, difficult to uh, make my head around this. Uh, People there in the community garden say that it's very healthy, it's much better than in in the shops. And I believe them. And I was also really fascinated when there was this second event, which I told you about, where this person came, Uh, her name is Ella, and she brought uh, two... Jars of lilacs, like drink made of lilacs. Huh. Um, Do you understand, yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like a tea. Yeah, and it's a bit sweet. She brought also cups and everybody could try it. So it was really something like a miracle for me because I have never thought that it could be drunk in this way. And during the interview that Ella gave me, she mentioned that she has a passion for using for food natural plants, natural, I don't know, plants, flowers, uh, that people have already forgot how to uh, use them and forgot that they are actually edible and drinkable.
0: It sounds like this experience of connecting with these, these plants and this gardening movement, it's a really new experience for you.
1: Yeah, it's new, and also this context, I think, that people grow it, like, together. It's also new for me because I was aware of growing something, like, for private purposes, but not, like, collectively. I think the fact that it's collective and that it's so spontaneous, that uh, really fascinates me.
0: Jerry also learned about other events at the garden featuring Ella as the instructor. Workshops about making things
1: with plants. For example, one can collect some pigments from the flowers and paint, like watercolor technique, as, as I understood, and that there will be a workshop and there will be some other educational events of this kind. I was told that there was some workshop how to grow the plants in permaculture way. This term is also new for me. And so they are not only growing things, but they are educating people how to do this.
0: Yeah, and bringing people together in community.
1: Yes, exactly. And it turns out that uh, those places are kind of social hubs and that this community garden thing is just one of them because one of the people from there told me that she has just organized a children flea market. And next day I came to the children flea market, and it's it was also very simple, democratic, and uh, just uh, as a matter of fact.
0: Just as a matter of fact. Talking to Jerry about his community garden experience in Estonia reminded me of what we learned about garden education when I worked at Mother Hubbard's cupboard here in Bloomington. Known locally as The Hub, it's a food pantry that also serves as a community food resource center, offering gardening and cooking classes, as well as advocacy organizing around issues facing people in poverty. The idea of the garden workshops was to share skills about growing food so that folks could maybe raise food themselves in a move towards self-sufficiency. What we learned in doing the garden workshops was that First of all, the idea of self-sufficiency was a myth, perhaps even a harmful one. No one is self-sufficient. And in fact, we know now that one of the mitigating factors in how well folks manage with low incomes and generational poverty is that isolation contributes to worse outcomes. Community connections make a huge difference in access to resources and support and contribute to a higher quality of life. So we learned in these garden workshops what was happening when people gathered in a garden and worked together outdoors with plants is that folks weren't necessarily learning how to grow their own food. What they were doing was building community. We were connecting with each other over a shared task and experiencing all of the benefits that come from being outside in nature, moving our bodies, talking, and sharing food. I think this might be similar to what Jerry is describing in his encounter with a community garden movement in Estonia. A garden is more than a beautiful place. It's more than a source of fresh food. It can be a refuge and a respite in times of crisis, turmoil, and everyday challenges and frustrations. It's a place where we can sometimes find each other and find ourselves. Jerry Mercury is awaiting news about his immigration status in Estonia. You can find his article about the community garden called When Grassroots Not Only Sprout, published on the ERR News site in Estonia. We have a link on our website. You can also find a link to a video that Jerry Mercury made about the community garden project. You can find our website at eartheats.org. After a short break, we'll talk about how the abundance of a vegetable garden can lead to spontaneous interactions with neighbors, plus a recipe for crisp refrigerator pickles. Stay with us. You're listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. When I think about the ways that gardens can connect people, this year's cucumber harvest comes to mind. I'm talking about my own garden. I always plant mine a bit late, once the peas are finished. That way I can reuse the same trellis for the vines to climb on. I only planted a few this year, but I still ended up with a bumper crop and so I've been handing them out to unsuspecting neighbors walking by, bringing bags of them to work. And yesterday I set up a wooden chair in the yard next to the sidewalk with a row of freshly picked cucumbers and a sign reading, free cucumbers. When I returned after work, they were gone. I love sharing food from my garden, with friends and with strangers. The garden's abundance sparks generosity. This next recipe only requires a few cucumbers, but if you find yourself drowning in them, you could always make extra batches and take jars of pickles to your neighbor's porch. Today we're going to make fridge pickles. And pickles are one of my favorite things to do with cucumbers. It's really the reason that I grow them. Cucumbers, like so many summer vegetables, tend to all get ripe and ready to pick around the same time. This is why people are always dropping off squash and tomatoes and cucumbers on their neighbor's porches because you just get kind of overrun with them all at once. And then when the season's over, you don't have any more cucumbers. Well, I really enjoy cucumbers in pickles and I really, really like fridge pickles. The first time I made pickles, I canned them and I was very unhappy with the result. The canning process took away from the texture. They didn't have that crunch that I enjoy in a pickle. Solution, make fridge pickles. They keep it just as well. You just have to find a place to store them in your fridge and they taste great. And most importantly, they retain that crunch. My favorite kind of pickle is the bread and butter pickle. The recipe that I'm going to use is not exactly a bread and butter pickle, but it reminds me of it. It's not quite as sweet. This is a recipe that comes from Alton Brown, and it's called Alton Brown's Kinda-Sorta Sours. And that's a pretty good description, but I also just tend to refer to them as bread and butter pickles because that's what the flavor really reminds me of. They're very simple to prepare. The ingredients, one half onion, two medium cucumbers, a cup of water, a cup of apple cider vinegar, a half cup of wine vinegar, a half cup of sugar, a little more than two tablespoons of kosher salt, a teaspoon of mustard seed, a quarter teaspoon of ground turmeric, one teaspoon of celery seed, one teaspoon of pickling spice, four whole garlic cloves, and that's it. You'll also need a quart-sized jar, maybe more. You might need two quart-sized jars. We'll see how far we get, or maybe a quart and a pint, um, but we'll see. We'll see what fits. So the first thing that we're gonna need to do, I've assembled all of the ingredients and equipment, and we're gonna need to slice our cucumbers and our onion. And I'm just gonna slice these into thin rounds, not super thin, because again, you wanna retain that crunch. If they get too thin, they tend to get a little flimsy when they're in the brine. So I'm cutting these about a quarter inch thick. My cucumbers are homegrown, and the kind of cucumbers that I grow are pickling cucumbers. They tend to be smaller, a little bit bumpy. I really love the flavor of these, so this is the kind that I always grow. But it also means that the calculations of what two cucumbers is can be a little off. So I try to think about a typical cucumber that I might buy in the grocery store, and then I try to make sure I have about the same amount in my smaller pickling cucumbers and as you're slicing these cucumbers you're just going to want to put them directly into the jar. I learned in food preservation school that you definitely do not want to include the blossom end of your cucumber. Apparently that can cause problems for your pickles down the road so just make sure you cut off the ends and don't include that in your pickle jar. The next ingredient to prepare is the onion. This adds a lot of flavor to the brine, but it's also pretty tasty as a pickled thing too, if you like pickled onions. And these you do want to thinly slice. Just half an onion. Try not to cry. And then just stuff those onion slices into the jar with your cucumbers. Once you have your pickles and your onions sliced and placed in your jar, then it's time to combine all of the other ingredients into a saucepan. And that saucepan needs to be stainless steel or enamel lined or something. You can't use um, cast iron or aluminum. You want what's called a non reactive metal pan. Stainless steel is fine. That's basically going to be the vinegar, the water, and the spices. It's so one cup of water, one cup of apple cider vinegar, and a half cup of wine vinegar. Alton Brown calls for champagne vinegar. I don't have that, but I do have some red wine vinegar. I don't have quite enough, so I'm just adding a little extra apple cider vinegar. One half cup sugar. Two tablespoons plus two teaspoons of kosher salt. One teaspoon of mustard seed a quarter teaspoon of turmeric, and that's what gives it that nice golden color, which is signature of the bread and butter pickle. Teaspoon of celery seed and a teaspoon of pickling spice. If you don't have pickling spice, you can probably dig around through your spice cabinet and maybe find all of the ingredients. Let's see what it's got. It's got bay leaf, coriander, Mustard, dill, what else? This one has a lot of allspice which I'm not crazy about so I try to avoid that because I don't really want it to get too sweet. I don't really want those warming spices. This one also looks like it has some red pepper flakes in it. Okay, I said it had dill seed but I'm actually not seeing any in this so I'm not entirely sure. I might add a little dill seed to mine. I really don't want to make pickles without dill Plus, I have so much fresh dill seed in my garden right now, it'd be a shame not to use some of it. Okay, so that is everything but the garlic, and we're going to add the garlic at the end. So now we want to take this mixture of the spices, the vinegar, and the water, and we're going to heat that up on the stove, just barely to boiling. While you're waiting for that water to heat up, you can get your garlic ready. So just peel it, and then just smash it with the side of your knife or with your fist, whatever. Just smash the garlic and then put it in the jar. Just place it into the jar with the other vegetables. Once your pickle brine comes to a boil, then you can pour it into your jars. You wanna do this very slowly so it doesn't spill. A canning funnel comes in handy, but it's not necessary, just be careful. And that's it. Once you get the brine poured over the cucumbers and the onions and the garlic, you want to make sure it's they're totally submerged in that liquid, in that brine. And then you just uh, let that cool on your countertop. Once they're fully cool, you can put a lid on it and stick it in your fridge. You probably don't want to taste them for a couple of days, they're going to taste a lot better in, a, in two or three days. And then you can enjoy your homegrown cucumbers well into the fall. I wanted to say you can enjoy them through the winter, but ours never last that long. You can find this recipe on our website, eartheats.org. And if you are a visual learner, you can watch me walk through the steps of this simple pickle recipe on our Earth Eats YouTube channel. You can find that just by searching for Earth Eats on YouTube. You'll find us, and it's the bread and butter pickles. You can also find this recipe written on our website, eartheats.org. Food waste is the largest category of trash going to landfills, according to an estimate from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency in 2018. Community composting operations are popping up in cities across the country, hoping to keep that waste out of landfills and return nutrients to the soil. But not all cities are welcoming them, especially when neighbors complain about bad smells and pests. Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfaye reports on how cities in the Midwest are handling these new operations.
2: On the urban farm Herbivore in Kansas City, Missouri, Brooke Savaggio and Daniel Hurrier hold a scoop of what they call black gold. If you smell it, it just smells like fertility, you know? It
1: smells, I mean, it just smells like really rich soil. Um, and, and when we put it out on the fields, it becomes really rich soil.
2: <laughs> but not all their neighbors agree about the smell. While Savaggio says the compost is improving Herbivore's yields, neighbors complained to the city about it being a nuisance. The city now says the operation requires a special use permit. Herrier says they checked with the city before expanding back in 2021, and he says the city should be working with them, not against them, to manage food waste sustainably.
1: I want to create more compost hubs like this around the city and the metro area. And the cities and other municipalities around this area, but certainly the city of Kansas City should be helping us do that.
2: Food waste takes up space in landfills and produces methane, a powerful greenhouse gas that contributes to climate change. Sending less food waste to landfills can save municipalities money and reduce climate impacts, says Brenda Platt of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. But she says community composting can be a challenge for municipalities and cities. Local governments can either say, oh, you've got a problem, or they can help these operations that support their communities to overcome the obstacles. Platt says cities don't have updated zoning rules that address composting specifically. The Midwest is especially behind when it comes to supporting composting, says Jennifer Trent, a program manager at the Iowa Waste Reduction Center at the University of Northern Iowa.
0: lot of times it's a preconceived idea or notion that compost sites are foul places and that they won't be beneficial to the community.
2: She says composting doesn't have to be a nuisance when done right, but she warns that one operation doing it wrong can ruin the practice for an entire region.
0: If you have a compost site that's not complying with the regulations, enforce those laws. You know, don't allow them to continue until it's fixed.
2: The U.S. Composting Council says having good zoning laws, enforcing them, and educating residents about composting helps make sure everything runs smoothly. When Ben Stanger wanted to start his business, Greenbox Compost, in Wisconsin, a lot of municipalities told him no. But he says Sun Prairie, just outside of Madison, was willing to change a zoning code for his business. It just happened to be that Sun Prairie, you know, really rolled out the welcome mat and and helped us kind of work through this. Stanger is composting indoors with containers and using a slightly more technological approach to prevent problems like smells and pests. But the city is also doing its part by educating residents, says Jake King, the city's communications and diversity strategist. We really try to look at that public outreach and engagement so people know what we're doing and but most importantly know why we're doing it. Back in Kansas City, herbivore is appealing its violations and hoping that will result in larger changes to city rules. Assistant City Manager Melissa Kazakowitz says that city leadership is currently in discussions with herbivore on how it can better support composting and urban farming. Kansas City
3: and every other city in America has an opportunity to think about how it manages its waste in a different way.
2: The challenge for cities is figuring out how to not only support composters, but also how to regulate them before the problems start. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai.
0: More and more schools are offering students fresh, locally grown food in their cafeterias. It's the big idea behind the farm-to-school movement. And there's a lot of federal investment behind it. As Harvest Public Media contributor Ray Solomon reports, those dollars aim to reshape school lunch menus and strengthen local farm communities. Derek Hoffman
3: is poking around a dense row of bushy tomato plants on his 100-acre farm on the outskirts of Greeley in northern Colorado. He's filling a white plastic bucket with ripe cherry tomatoes that he's already sold to the local school district.
1: These will go to Greeley Evans School District here just down the road. What about five? Five miles from there, uh their warehouse.
3: In about a week, kids will be snacking on them in nearby school cafeterias. Hoffman's tomatoes are part of a growing farm-to-school movement revolutionizing the humble school lunch. When farm-to-school programming works as designed, kids fill their plates with fresh, nutritious food, and local farm economies get a major boost. Hoffman's farm-to-school contracts brought enough financial stability that he was able to quit his off-the-farm job.
1: It's allowed us to To grow. It's allowed us to do what we're doing.
3: It seems like such a simple idea that benefits everyone involved. But while Hoffman and the schools he works with represent the best outcome of farm to school programs, they are hardly the norm. Getting local food into schools has proven frustratingly complicated.
2: We often hear that schools and producers initially don't talk the same language.
3: Cindy Long administers the farm to school program at the United States Department of Agriculture.
0: Schools think about, oh, I need you know, 7,500 servings of this and farmers think in terms of, you know, bushels or crates.
3: Long's agency has been funding farm to school efforts at the federal level for more than a decade. She says the challenges have included the cost of local food, training cafeteria staff, and an admittedly bureaucratic purchasing system. To get past those challenges, it takes solutions that are flexible, specific, and above all, local
0: schools and producers really just needed an ongoing source of support to help take folks from interest to actually being able to execute.
3: Recent policy changes at the federal level make providing that support a new priority. Last year, the USDA started funneling unprecedented amounts of money to states specifically to get more local food into schools. At least $260 million directly fund local food purchases and related farm to school infrastructure.
0: We have been describing it as trying to drink out of a fire hose because there's just so much money coming down from the USDA. Sunny
3: Baker with the National Farm to School Network says all the money coming from the USDA is a once in a lifetime opportunity to give school lunch a head to toe makeover and integrate it into local food systems.
0: One of the best things that can come out of this like massive influx of money is going to be that we're developing really incredible examples of how this can work and like learning what's possible.
3: In northern Iowa, for instance, those investments trickled down to the Clear Lake School District in the form of $8,000 grants to buy farm-fresh food through a new network of regional food hubs that made local purchasing a breeze for food services director Julie Udelhofen.
0: As I saw that product come in, the freshness, the, the color, the flavor... It just made it all worth it. Udo was always
3: interested in farm-to-school programs, but without support, the process was just too burdensome. Now that she's got a taste of it, she does not want to go back to business as usual. As long as my budget looks good and I can support it, um, I'm going to get that food in front of the kids. There's just one catch. That fire hose of extra funding is not permanent. It runs out at the end of this school year. Udehofen is hoping her local food service can outlive the money. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Ray
0: Solomon. Harvest Public Media is a collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains. Find more at harvestpublicmedia.org. Dear Earth Eats listeners, Yes, I'm talking to you with your radio tuned to WFIU or this episode downloaded into your podcast playlist. Thank you for tuning in. I want to invite you to consider subscribing to the Earth Eats Digest. It's a short newsletter I put out every two weeks. I write a little something at the beginning, usually about the current season, and what might be growing or what sounds good to eat. Maybe I'll touch on some larger issue in the food world. It's usually along the lines of a short personal essay. The newsletter also includes a hand-picked selection of recipe links that take you directly to the Earth Eats archive found on our website. And then I'll mention what's coming up on the show or what you might have just missed the previous week. And I announce any special events or things that might be of interest to listeners. There's always plenty of photos and links to make it easy to find out more about anything that piques your interest. The newsletter is called the Earth Eats Digest. It's free, and it's easy to sign up. If you go to eartheats.org, you'll see a pale green rectangle to the right of the page that says, Stay in touch with Earth Eats. Just click on that and you'll be signed up in no time. I never send an email more than once every two weeks and we won't sell your data or your email address to anyone else or try to get you to sign up for a paid subscription. There is no paid version of the Earth Eats Digest. It's all free. I look forward to connecting with you more. Go to eartheats.org to subscribe. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Aya Binder, Alexis Carvajal, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Jerry Mercury and to Sarah Phillips, for connecting us. Earth Eats is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge.